This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack. A University of Missouri study is trying to find better ways for teachers to cope with stress. Congress is running out of time to raise the debt ceiling and to prevent the U.S. from defaulting. We'll hear from the Missouri Bankers Association. Former Mizzou head football coach Gary Pinkle later this week will be inducted into the Cotton Bowl Classic Hall of Fame. We'll have Coach on with us in just a few moments. First responders in Missouri communicate on a higher and uninterrupted level because of a federal program teamed up with a wireless company. The governor and other state leaders recently celebrated the first five years of the partnership with FirstNet Authority and AT&T. Ashley Bird talks with Craig Unruh, president of AT&T Missouri and Arkansas. FirstNet is a public safety broadband network. It's, it is the only broadband network uh, built with and for America's first responders in, this, in the extended public safety community. It was brought about when Congress, um, if, if you recall the communications problems that first responders had during the tragic 9-11 uh, occurrence in, in, in New York. Um, first responders couldn't communicate to each, with each other, and it was a, a recognized problem. And Congress, to their credit, um, in 2012, passed um, legislation that created a new government agency called the FirstNet Authority. And the vision was to create one statewide public safety broadband network that could be used by all first responders and public agencies that support them. And um, the FirstNet Authority put out a request for proposal, and AT&T won that contract. It's a 25-year contract, and so AT&T is the private vendor that is building this wireless broadband public safety network for our first responders. So it sounds like it's still a work in progress. So it will be a 25-year contract. It is definitely a work in progress, but we have made great strides in, in getting it started and up and rolling. The advantage, one of the advantages of utilizing AT&T is that we already had our own commercial wireless network, right, that we, we provide wireless wireless service for, let's call them regular consumers, right? Mm-hmm. And the advantage that FirstNet has is they get to use that public commercial network as part of FirstNet, but then there's also dedicated spectrum that gives them extra capabilities um, that uh, goes beyond what the public has. And um, so they get the advantage because AT&T was already a wireless carrier. They already they started with the advantage of having a nationwide wireless network that we're now building FirstNet on top of to provide enhanced capabilities. And here's where it gets exciting. It sounds really high tech. A dedicated fleet of over 150 land based and airborne deployable assets to keep responders connected. What are these assets? Uh, what are they? What do they look like? Yeah, exactly. So in addition to the literally tens and tens of thousands of wireless towers that provide our wireless service today for, you know, for the phones we all carry around in our pockets, the, the FirstNet community, all those public safety and FirstNet responders 
or I'm sorry, first uh, first responders and the public agencies that support them, they get to use that commercial network as, as a starting point, like I mentioned, and then add the capabilities that FirstNet uh, includes. And, and one of the things that FirstNet includes is these, uh, what we call deployable assets. So envision a scenario where, you know, heaven forbid some tragedy happens and say an earthquake, hurricane or, you know, these big natural disasters and say a, a wireless tower site goes down and we lack coverage in an area and it's a critical area where, where, um, where first responders need to be able to communicate with each other. We have these over 150 dedicated assets that we can move to those locations and basically set up temporary wireless towers in effect. And so they come in a variety of forms and, and will continue to, to grow as we continue to grow FirstNet. But there are things like, there are things like cell towers, you know, these wireless towers. There are things like cell towers on the back of a truck. There are things like blimps. We can roll into an area and, and stick a, a, literally a blimp up in the air and provide cellular coverage out of that blimp. We have drones that will do the, do the same kinds of things. We have, um, we have what are now called compact rapid deployables or CRDs as they're commonly referred to. These are smaller devices that literally can be carried in the back of a, a truck and, and set up by one technician in, in no time. And it provides cellular, you know, wireless coverage in, in an area, say around where, um, let's, let's say first responders have set up a command center somewhere, right? And, and the nearby wireless tower is down, uh, we can bring in and provide them cellular coverage in a very quick, speedy time frame to make sure they're able to communicate and use the tools and the applications they need to, to help uh, resolve that situation, whatever, whatever that emergency might be. We're talking to Craig Unruh, who is the president of AT&T Missouri and Arkansas. Glad to have you with us. And you said this stuff has actually been used. It's been used during Hurricane Ian. What kind of difference do you think this has, has made in the in the past few years? Oh, yes. We've seen the tremendous value of, of FirstNet as as some of these tragedies occur. Obviously, we, you know, we, we don't want these tragedies to occur, but 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 they're going to happen. Right. And and so. The advantage of, of FirstNet is we're going to be in there. We're going to be serving those uh, public safety agencies and those first responders. One of the things that they get, so imagine a you know some sort of terrible tragedy. First thing people do is they get on their wireless phones and they start trying to call their loved ones and texting, and people start shooting videos of you know their live streaming videos of damage, and all of that's wonderful and important and all of that kind of thing. But on regular commercial wireless networks of, of all of the providers, those networks can get clogged up. And, and there's just too many people trying to do too many things in one small area at, at one time. And the, the, the advantage of FirstNet is it provides what is known as priority and preemption. And so it will put – so first responders that have FirstNet devices, their calls – their data lookups, their text messaging, all of those get priority and preemption 
We basically put them in the front of the line to make sure that they are able to communicate with each other and all of the other first responders, you know, responding to that scene to, to enable them to make sure they stay in contact, even though the commercial networks might be overwhelmed at that point. And so we can see that occurring in things like natural disasters, but we also see it in things like where there's just massive crowds that come together to celebrate events like the Kansas City Chiefs winning the Super Bowl and all of a sudden a half a million people are within a few blocks of each other and and those kinds of large gatherings can tie up kind of regular wireless carriers commercial networks and that's where the beauty of FirstNet comes in and, and ensures those first responders are, are still able to communicate. Craig Unruh, who is the president of Missouri and Arkansas AT&T, thank you for being with us today on Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact, like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. 
The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. Welcome back to Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack. January 1st, 2008 is a day I will always remember. I had just started covering sports for Missouri Net that previous fall, and it was my first year covering the Mizzou football team. And I came in at the perfect time. It was uh, the season that the Tigers went 11-1. and They beat Kansas at Arrowhead to move up to number one in the country, a berth in the Big 12 championship game. Uh, and they finished with uh, a 12-2 record. One of just six times in school history to finish a football season with double-digit wins. And at the time, it was uh, the most wins ever for a Mizzou football program. Well, coming up on the 11th, running back Tony Temple from that team and head coach Gary Pinkle will be inducted into the Cotton Bowl Classic Hall of Fame. And joining us is Coach Pinkle. Hi, Gary. How you doing? Yeah, well, great to have you. Hey, how many Hall of Fames uh, does this make for you now? I mean, this is becoming a yearly occurrence. Well, I've been very blessed. You know, you know, I always, you know, I always been surrounded by good people my whole life. You know, and as a football coach, you know, I, I think what we get paid to do is to, is to, you know, unite all these uh, players and coaches uh, together, where they work hard and they, and they, and they, you know, they compete to, to make their teammates better. And, and so um, that's, I think I'm pretty good at that. But, you know, you know, we've got great players and great people around you. You know, a lot of good things happen. Well, congratulations on the induction into the Cotton Bowl Hall of Fame. I mentioned the 08 Cotton Bowl. I was also there six years later when your Tigers beat Oklahoma State 41-31. That was a, a great game. So you went 2-0 and in Cotton Bowl games. Texas was such an important state for you in building the Tigers program. Oh, it really was, and you know those those were two great you know years for us. I mean, in, the, in 2000, after the 2007 season, 2008 Cotton Bowl, we ended up fourth in the nation, and then in 13 and 14, you know, a few years later, we get back in there. It's hard to do, and uh, you know we had that win over Oklahoma State. So I mean, we 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 really had food. I mean, I think we ended up fifth in the nation that year. So uh, yeah, it was awesome. But they do such a great job at that bowl game. I mean, it's just they're so professional. They they're so serving to all the coaches' wives and all the players that are there and the kids. You know, it's so important. You know, in so many ways, the bowl games is just a great reward, not only for players and our fans, but for our families and stuff. So, the Cotton Bowls. Uh, you look at the, that, that's the model. That's they do as good or better than anybody. Gary Pinkle joining us. Uh, he will be inducted into the Cotton Bowl Hall of Fame. In just a few days, um, I want to go back to that 07 season. Uh, and you're right, the Cotton Bowl does a, a great job. But um, after the, the Big 12 championship game against Oklahoma, which followed that great win over Kansas, uh, many thought Mizzou got screwed in the bowl selection process. Kansas went to the Orange Bowl, and uh, many fans, uh, a more prestigious bowl than the Cotton Bowl. Did your players resent that? And how did you use that as motivation to prepare for Arkansas? You know, I, I really didn't take that route with that, you know. So what happens is, 
you know, you're, you're right. We, we could have complained and, and been frustrated and disappointed and everything else because we had an opportunity to go to that, the other bowl, the Orange Bowl. And um, I know how good the, the Cotton Bowl was too, though, you know, and, 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 and how, how great it was. And so I, I just, the thing we did right away when it happened was we told our players, coaches, that this is, we're going to a great bowl. This is a phenomenal bowl. And our goal is just win it so we can, you know, finish this, finish this great season. And so we kind of took that approach. You know, we, you know, internally, I think our coaches were disappointed. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, we came across like it was the greatest thing that ever happened to us. And I think with that approach, that was a great attitude that kind of dissolved, you know, all the media discussions on, on the disappointment that we didn't get that top bowl. And so um, that worked out, and we made it work out to a very beneficial way. Well, Gary, that Tigers team on uh, January 1st of uh, 2008 looked very motivated, and you had an offense with Chase Daniel at at quarterback, explosive receivers and tight ends. You could throw the ball all over the field. And Arkansas tried to take that away from you. And uh, to say that it opened up running lanes for Tony Temple would be uh, an understatement. Uh, he had a huge day. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I don't even know how you describe it. Uh, he had a huge yeah. day. Yeah, he ran for 281 yards and four touchdowns, set a, a cotton ball record, and he'll be joining you uh, at this induction ceremony. But um, take us back as the game is going on and, and Arkansas is putting out a bunch of defensive backs and they're, they're taking away the pass. What are the conversations that the coaches are having uh, about changing uh, the plan of attack? Well, all the offensive coaches are on one phone, defenses others. I go back and forth. But, you know, I'm talking to our, our coaches and saying, what is going on? Well, coach, they're dropping, you know, dropping sometimes nine. Sometimes they drop ten people. Then only one, we're rushed one. Well, you're a quarterback there, and, you know, you, you have five deep zones covered, and you have five underneath. There's really nowhere to throw the football. It's hard, you know, to get it downfield. So, you know, we, we, we thought they'd only do a little bit and they'd go back and do the normal things that we saw them do all during the season. And they didn't. And so we just said, let's start running the ball more. Let's start running it more and just keep going. And they stayed, you know, dropping off. And after a while, they're backpedaling and we're running the ball. And it just, you know, we just made a really difficult situation uh, really work for us in a very, very positive way with good coaches and good players. And, you know, and so I, I'll never forget that. You know, I you go back and look at it on film and, you know, Chase would come back and says, there's nothing open. And there's, well, I wonder why. They got, and, and to listeners out there, you know, people don't rush one person and put and drop 10. Well, they did. <laughs> and it was working for a while, and they stayed with it when they probably shouldn't have stayed with it. And then we got some momentum in our offensive line. And, you know, Tony Temple had a great, a great, uh, a great game. And, and, you know, it was a, purely an adjustment. And, uh, and it was, it was, you know, I, I, I will never forget it. It was incredible. And we got to the end where he was, you know, he was struggling a little bit, but we knew that he could break the record. And I forget the numbers exactly at the time. And so Tony was out there and all the, you know, all the, everybody was excited about it. And I remember the last touchdown he scored right at the very end of the game, he was kind of limping off the field and he had a, one of our offensive linemen, I'm not sure who it is, going one side and, you know, he had chased Daniel. Uh, go on the other side, you know, and put their arms around them, and they and they kind of helped them off the field. Uh, you know, what a historic moment, you know, for just a great win. We end up uh, we ended up uh, final rankings. We had fourth in the nation. Yeah, yeah, I think it was like a forty yard runner. He tweaked his hamstring or something, but yeah, just uh, total toughness 
from Tony Temple. So you and Tony will be uh, together in Dallas for the uh, Cotton Bowl Classic Hall of Fame induction ceremony. And then that game, six years later, January 4th, 2014, uh, at least you were inside the AT&T Stadium. And uh, you knocked off old Big 8, Big 12 rival Oklahoma State, uh, a 41-31 win. Uh, and you capped off uh, another 12-2 and season. Um, boy, the, just some special games there in the Cotton Bowl for you and Mizzou. Oh, my gosh. You know, and, and so good. You know, we talk about the recruiting aspect of it. It was, you know, awesome, too, and one of the best states in the country. Yeah, we were very, very fortunate. Oklahoma State had a really good football team, and it was a battle throughout the game. And, you know, we had made some big plays, you know, Shane Ray, Michael Sam gets a tackle. He scoops the things up, goes 70 yards, 73 yards, I think it is, on for a rushing touchdown. This is later in the third or fourth quarter. But, uh, wow, it was uh, it was an offensive day. And uh, defensively, we struggled a little bit. Uh, but we did the things necessary as a team, you know, to, to pull out the win. And, you know, it was a 10, I think it was a 10-point win. I think it was like 41, 30, 31. And, um it was uh, in the stadium. It's just you know, Rudy, we talked about it. yeah, that, that the stadium is just absolutely incredible, and uh, so it was. There's so many pluses, and then the recruiting aspect is massive because you know we've always done well in Texas recruiting. There's a huge population, obviously, and uh, this even you know this even you know made it even bigger and better for us you know long term. So we we got a lot out of that, and you know we had a fifth of the nation that year. So. Uh, you know, what a, you know, two, two great years, Cotton Bowl victories, you know, and, um, to, to, you know, a, a organization, uh, the Cotton Bowl that, that gives you the, your players and coaches and fans the very, very best environment. And, uh, and boy, was it a lot of fun. And, and our business always, <laughs> when you, when you, when you win, it's always fun. So. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're always the good guy. The other side, but we don't even talk about the other side. <laughs> well, congratulations, Gary Pinkle, on your uh, Hall of Fame induction into the Cotton Bowl. Uh, how are things going with your GP Made Foundation? Oh, it's going great. You know, it's a, I retired uh, six, seven years ago because of my cancer. My cancer, I'm doing okay battling that. Um, the kind I have will always have it. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I missed I missed my players, you know. And by the way, my players drove me nuts too, in many ways. Okay, but uh, but I I, I miss my players. I miss you know loving them, hugging them, making more accountable, responsible people. And I can always tell people, my players would tell you this too, that it, it was it was it was I, I would bring them up like they're my sons. Okay, so it was it was about you know you know we have every year I talk about taking a gal on a date. Okay, this is what you do, and it's what you don't do, and that's just one little fragment of what we're talking about. But uh, uh, you know, that's that's one thing that you know that I, I, I we did a lot more than win football games. We helped develop young men, and so our foundation does the same thing for kids with leukemia, lymphoma, kids that has physical challenges, uh, kids that come from really difficult backgrounds, and, you know, and, and poverty, and you know, just uh, just to get you in position where you can be successful. And I'm doing something significant now. That's significant, not playing golf. And so um, that's been good for us. We've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars the last few years, and we're going to keep it going. And uh, I appreciate you. It's called the GP Made Foundation. You go to gpmade.org, uh, and, and you can look us up. And uh, we're really, really uh, uh, we're excited about you know, doing something that I always did, was take care of kids, and we got to continue to do that. 
Yeah, well, that's good. Congratulations with that, and uh, glad to hear that you're doing well. And it was great catching up with you. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk to you soon. I'm sure there's another Hall of Fame out there somewhere that you'll be getting inducted into. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but thank you very much. I'm, I'm really, you know, really proud of um, of uh, the University of Missouri and the successes that we had and my players. And, and uh, anyway, it's just been a blessing. Gary, great catching up with you. Thank you. Yeah, God bless you. Thank you. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past the turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's It's our our roads. roads. It's It's our our safety. safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. If you talk and they will hear you Why are we getting killed like this? Kyle's not here. Got caught drinking during the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Harsh. Hey, he knew not to drink. We've made that clear to all of our kids, right? Uh, no, not really. Bill, if we don't tell them what we expect and why they shouldn't drink, how are they going to know? Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. You try All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact. Like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control, and priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Email from school about the incident today. Scary. Tell me about it. Did you have any idea that was going on? None. I mean, you saw Derek at the game last night, too. Did you have a clue? 
No, but you know, teachers like me, parents, we don't always know as much as you guys do. Kids hear first about what's going on with other kids. Half the time, it's rumors. It can be hard to tell sometimes, but if you have a concern about a friend who's having trouble with alcohol, prescription drugs, bullying, violence, anything, you need to tell an adult. Mom or me, a teacher, coach, school counselor, someone you know and trust. Dad, no kid is going to tell an adult about that kind of stuff. I get it, but if we don't know, we can't help. Speaking up about a problem, that's what helping a friend is all about. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Thanks for listening to Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Congress running out of time to raise the debt ceiling and prevent the U.S. from defaulting. Anthony Morabith is with Jackson Hathaway with the Missouri Bankers Association to help make sense of what's really going on in D.C. and how it's affecting everyday Missourians. The debt ceiling is a piece of the the financial ecosystem that we unfortunately talk about far more than than we should. Um, You know, I think historically, if you look back prior to maybe 10 years ago, the debt ceiling was not really a topic of conversation for the dinner table. Um, It wasn't a piece of political uh, uh, chess that was played with every year. And now we find ourselves, you know, every, let's say, six, eight months, we're having some conversation about the debt ceiling. And it's a warranted, well-warranted conversation, because I'm sure as many of your listeners know, the U.S. has $31 trillion or so in debt. And that is a very scary number. It's a big number. Uh, it is one that begs the question, how will we pay that debt off? What are we doing to control it? And what is the legacy of that debt for the generations that follow us? And so whenever the debt ceiling comes up, it gets caught up in this this very difficult conversation around what does a debt load mean, not only for us, but for the future of our country. And it's a very, very valid question and one that uh, the halls of Congress should be wrestling with, the administration should be wrestling with, and our agencies, our federal agencies should be wrestling with as they look at budget plans and the ways that moving forward we can have fiscal discipline, which I don't think anyone on either side of the aisle would disagree with at this point. They would disagree on how you have fiscal discipline, but they could not disagree that we have far overextended what we anticipated to be our debt load, and we're not able to find a really rational and common sense way to bring it under control. Now, all of that said, the debt ceiling itself has one, I think, fundamental point that most people um, get confused about. When the, when the Congress raises the debt ceiling, they are not issuing new debt. Raising the debt ceiling allows the U.S. to borrow against existing obligations that it must pay. And when I say existing obligations, I mean everything from treasury bills to paying FAA workers out there working in control towers so airplanes can get from point A to point B to military personnel who are waiting on that paycheck to come in. So what we are doing when we raise the debt ceiling is allowing the U.S. to borrow monies to continue the operations of the U.S. government and the obligations it has already agreed to pay on a timely basis. That can even float so far down as Social Security payments. Without a debt ceiling increase, it's not that we don't pick up new debt. It's possible for all the federal agencies, it's possible for Congress, it's possible for the administration to go out and still try to spend a trillion dollars. The problem is that we can't pay on those obligations. So the spending could theoretically happen, and we just don't have the mechanism to continue to put good funds towards paying off that debt. And as a result, you would see a gigantic kind of ecosystem maelstrom hit, uh, we think anyway, the broader U.S. market, uh, because what would essentially happen is we wouldn't pay our bills. 
and it would be just or very close to uh, choosing just not to pay your mortgage. You might pay some other bills, but you're not going to pay your mortgage. Eventually, that's going to be a problem, and someone's going to come to your house and tell you, this is not your house anymore. That's a very good analogy to what could happen if Congress doesn't lift the debt ceiling. I think what most people don't understand is that this is not about spending new money. Um, it's easy to get confused when we talk about the debt ceiling and think that the U.S. is is putting new money out there in new programs. And the reality is this is a way to borrow money to pay for existing obligations that we've already issued. We've already said we're going to spend to pay for Social Security or to pay FAA salaries. Um, so that planes get from point A to point B, or we're going to pay for military operations and, and efforts that we have underway. So we have these folks who have bought U.S. debt and funded for us those kinds of spending programs. They, that's already happened, and we owe them back money, or we owe monies out there to pay for those programs. And the reality is if the debt ceiling doesn't get raised, there are kind of unpredictable effects but the most critical one is we look like a bad person to buy debt from. And as a result, that cost will likely go up for the U.S. Our credit rating will go down, and it'll be harder and harder and more costly to fund the kinds of things that we've already promised we'll do. And so we need to think about the debt ceiling not in the context of what new spending are we bringing on, but what spending are we already obliged to pay for. And we have to be able to meet those obligations so that the U.S. remains the preeminent financial system in the world. That is what allows us to do the kinds of things we do as a country. Regardless of how you feel about programs that we have or spends that we make, this is about kind of rear view mirror. We've already done this. Now we have to meet our obligations. And if we can't do that, who are we as a person to look at when it comes to our debt? And I'm glad that you brought that up. We're talking with Missouri Bankers Association President Jackson Hathaway here on Show Me Today. We're talking about the debt ceiling. And uh, obviously, if you keep up with that, uh, June 1st is kind of the date that uh, a lot of uh, publications and organizations in the media have kind of tossed around as of late. And uh, it basically, and I'm sure that we'll get to that, but I like what you were mentioning a moment ago. Basically saying the biggest contributors to our nation's federal debt, Medicare, military, Social Security. And depending on uh, how this gets resolved, we could potentially see some cuts in that moving forward. Yeah, there are various proposals, as I said, to, to rein in federal spending. Those are uh, partisanly driven for the most part. Uh, people have various political objectives. Some of them that you'll see loudly uh, in the news media are likely positioning themselves for a 2024 political run whether that's presidential or otherwise, they have certain um, kind of moments to make their case to the American public about who they are and their candidacy. And unfortunately, the debt ceiling gets wrapped up in that. The, I think reality for everyday Missourians and, and really everyday Americans is when it comes to Medicare or Social Security payments that you know your grandmother is counting on, you want those to arrive as expected because now you're talking about people's livelihoods and the way that we have promised that we will continue to ex extend uh, the expected obligations we have to them. Whether that means moving forward, those obligations look the same, that's a matter for intense discussion, debate, um, some some revision in, in cases of, of broader federal programs. Um, and that's something that I think uh, you, you hear our, even our own delegation argue about differently. Everyone has different perspectives. I think most people want to leave Social Security alone, but certainly when it comes to uh, military spending or Medicare, Medicaid spending, um, 
there are numerous other programs that kind of fall well below the line when you compare them against the largest programs, as you mentioned. There are lots of different proposals out there for what you do to either cut that spending down or, I mean, just to put cards on the table to increase taxes to fund more of those obligations. You know, you have proposals on both sides, the political divide, that make a lot of people unhappy. But none of them, as you've seen recently, believe that that means that we should uh, not be able to pay our obligations out to the American citizens that are depending on them, or in the, the case of Treasury, and not pay obligations as a result, make the cost of doing business go up so dramatically that you want to talk about a market uh, really tumultuous event, suddenly commercial entities, people that hold treasuries, I mean, everybody gets very, very uncomfortable and uncertain about what it means to buy U.S. debt or to support the U.S. debt load, um, and that's a tricky proposition. And I'm glad you brought that up because uh, a lot of people have mentioned that we're either in a recession or that we're approaching a recession. And so I think an interesting question to pose is that depending on if the U.S. defaults, because, again, a lot of people keep mentioning this uh, June 1st date here, uh, if we potentially do go into a default, as it were, could this potentially get worse than it was 15 years ago? Unfortunately, I do think that's the case. Uh, and I wish I could paint a rosier picture, but the June 1 deadline, I think, snuck up on a lot of folks. Uh, most were anticipating July-ish for the U.S. to suddenly come up against the fiscal wall, as it were. And when Treasury Secretary Yellen said June 1, you saw a lot of reaction. Senator McConnell's been a little more standoffish on this, but both uh, chambers suddenly became very active in trying to get conversation going. Uh, there are some problems with that. If you look at, say, the Senate calendar, uh, they're not there that much in D.C. right now, and it's very difficult to get an agreement if you're not in the same town. I think a lot of that is uh, changing in real time as we speak because nobody wants to default on the debt. Very few people want to default. Um, and there are, are very rational reasons for that in a good, normal environment, let alone a time when we are likely heading towards some kind of recession, mild or steep. If the U.S. were to default, I do think that it leads to a much deeper recession, uh, something that we haven't seen in a long, long time. Show me the day. Meet Keith, loving dad, board game champ, bus driving pro. I drive 65,000 miles in my bus each year. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. Like how there are some things I simply can't see. On my route the other day, a car tried to sneak past me and ends up right in my blind spot. I turned slowly, so I accidentally avoided it. But no car should be in the blind spot for a 40,000-pound bus. It's, it's our roads. roads. It's, it's our safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. Hi, Grandma. Can Nina come over for dinner? Sure. I've been meaning to ask you, what would happen if someone offered you a drink? Grandma! If anyone ever does, I want you to say, no, I have too much respect for my family and I don't want to get in trouble. I promise, Grandma. They really do hear you. For tips on what to say, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. That's underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. This message brought to you by SAMHSA and this station. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past a turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's, it's our roads. roads. It's, it's our, our safety. safety. 
visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. Women hear a lot about self-care these days, advice on ways to relax, exercise, eat healthy, and more. Those are all great, but one of the most important self-care steps we can take is making sure we're financially secure later in life. That means saving money for retirement. It's never too late to start, and it's the kind of self-care that brings peace of mind that lasts. For small steps you can take to save for retirement, visit wesaysaveit.org. That's we say save it.org, a message from AARP and the Ad Council. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. Show me today. A new University of Missouri study is trying to find better ways for teachers to cope with stress. College of Education and Human Development professor Keith Herman joins Cameron Connor to discuss some possible solutions. This was a study that was led by Dr. Seth Woods, who's a, um, a graduate of the University of Missouri, but also a school principal. Uh, and he was really struck by um, how many teachers were leaving the profession and was very concerned about that and looking for ways to support teachers and, you know, enjoying their career and in staying in the profession. And so he conducted this large study uh, that looked at the relationship between teacher stress levels, um, their job satisfaction and how coping related to those two things. And what he found was that coping uh, affected stress relations in a way that um, lessened the, the job dissatisfaction for those teachers who were coping well. Uh, and so this is important in that it gives us one avenue, uh, one way that we can support teachers who are experiencing high levels of stress in their occupation. Uh, we know that coping skills are readily teachable. Um, there's ways that we could support teachers in developing those skills. But I want to also add, I always add this note in that it, emphasizing that it's just one way to support teachers, because I don't want the message ever to be that teachers are solely responsible for stress levels that are high, astronomically high in most cases in our schools. Um, and so while we're supporting teachers coping, we also need to be attending to the aspects of school that are stressful for them and trying to reduce those stressors in the first place. Um, so this is just one one additional way to support teachers in that way. I love that note. That's that's something that's highly important to highlight just because of the fact that it's not all on the teacher. There should also be resources or anything out there like that if they do need to vent or if they do need to find a different coping mechanism or anything like that. One of the things when I was reading the release, you wrote a book, correct, titled Stress Management for Teachers, A Proactive Guide. Is that correct? Definitely. That's so yeah. what would be some potential solutions for teachers out there that might be struggling with this? So, as I mentioned, we we have done a lot of uh, other research, as have our colleagues around the country, um, just examining how stressed teachers are. And they've been for the past two decades 
teachers, teaching is one of the most stressful professions in the United States. Um, so that's well established. Um, and so we, we wrote that book about a decade ago, just as a way to get information and resources to teachers who were experiencing high levels of stress and maybe who not had not been exposed to some of these pretty well-established approaches to supporting uh, or lowering stress uh, in occupational settings. And so the framework that we put forth in that book is really based on you know, cognitive and behavioral principles, uh, and they encourage adults, um, teachers, and this applies to really any profession, to first um, pay attention to the two things that have the biggest influence on how we're feeling if we're stressed. Uh, and those are the way that we think about events uh, and the behaviors that we're engaging in. And so for teachers, when we look at behaviors that are related to their stress levels, one of the biggest ones that we consistently find is their skill in managing difficult behaviors in the classroom. Uh, teachers tell us over and over again that they're seeing increases in challenging disruptive behaviors in the classroom and that they haven't been prepared to manage those behaviors. And that is a major stressor for them. And so one avenue, one area of support for teachers to reduce stress levels is to to support their development of effective classroom management skills. Uh, and when we do that, we see this cycle of improvement where we see lower disruptive behaviors, lower levels of stress for the teacher and improved skills um, building off of each other. Um, and then in terms of thinking habits that are related to stress levels, uh, we know that the way that we view events can either heighten our experience of stress or lower it. And so one of the things that we talk about in detail in that book um, are effective cognitive coping strategies for changing, well, for evaluating our own thoughts. And it's not a matter of putting on rose-colored glasses and saying everything's okay. It's more critically evaluating what, what thoughts that I have about events or my principal or the community or my students that are helpful and which ones may be harmful to me that are not having a positive effect on my um, self-view and on my view of my students. You're listening to Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. I'm Cameron Connor. We're here with a University of Missouri professor from the College of Education and Human Development, Keith Herman, talking about a recent study that he was a part of that focuses around teacher stress and searching for the best ways to cope with it. One of the follow-up questions I have for that, it's a two-parter, is I guess in the study itself, what was the teacher demographic that we were looking at here? Were we looking at like one specific grade? Were we looking at just college professors? Were we looking at a scale of K through 12 through college? What was that like? Yeah, great question. So this was two large studies that were conducted over several years across the states of Missouri and Oklahoma. So the, the, it's a broad representation of teachers in those two states. It is K through 12. Um, so across the spectrum of elementary and secondary school. Um, and pretty much equal representation of teachers across across those grade levels. Um, and so we didn't we didn't find different effects of um, coping on stress and job satisfaction based on those different demographic characteristics. Uh, it seemed to be a consistent uh, relationship um, regardless of the school setting um, and other demographic characteristics of the population. Okay, and you may have already answered it, but just to follow up and make it a little bit more clear, when you looked at this K through 12 demographic of teachers, were there different levels of stress or were there different sorts of activities or interactions that were different between, I guess, you know, a five-year-old versus someone who's a senior in high school or anything like that with, with how stress varied by anything, or was it pretty comparable across the board? We've consistently found that while the stressors may vary, the specific stressors may vary across contexts the overall stress levels are pretty consistent for teachers at different levels. And so in one study, 
we found that uh, 93% of elementary teachers were telling us that they were experiencing elevated stress. By that, I, we define it by on a scale from one to 10, seven or higher. Uh, and similarly, in a, a separate middle school study, we found that 94% of middle school teachers told us the same thing. So very comparable levels of stress. Um, but yeah, as this, the stressors can look different in secondary schools because um, teachers interact with different groups of students who rotate in and out of their classrooms. That creates a different logistic challenge for them versus the elementary teachers who are set with the same students pretty much throughout the day. Um, so there are contextual factors that are different, but in terms of just, just glimpsing in a, a general classroom, teachers are telling us across the board that they are experiencing high levels of stress. Okay. Wow. That, that's highly, that's highly important information to note. And it, it's also, I don't want to say necessarily not, it's not that it's not surprising, but I, I thought it was extraordinarily interesting. The fact that it's pretty similar across the board. I think that's really important to to make note of. And Looking looking into that, I, I guess one of the other questions that I have in that regard is when you're looking at these issues, when it's stress related and you're talking about different coping strategies and things like that, how about the relationship that teachers have with their students in general? Is that something that can help a lot? Maybe when you're talking about initiating or maybe proactive conversations with with your students, I'm assuming that has to help in some regard. Absolutely. And when we go back to that framework of supporting teacher in developing skills and strategies to manage their stress, it kind of goes back to that classroom management approach. Uh, relationships are the foundation of effective classroom management. And so if uh, teachers are frustrated with their students' behaviors, um, it just it can escalate, um, you know, conflict. And when there's conflict, that just makes students escalate problem behaviors and then it becomes more difficult to manage the classroom. And so that's definitely an entry point into improving job satisfaction is, you know, focusing on having positive relationships with students. And that's easier said than done sometimes. And I, I think that not to trivialize that when students are engaging in very challenging behaviors, it really does take, um, you know, a person to step back, reflect on why they became a teacher, to receive support outside of the classroom, to talk about some of the challenges they're having and to get feedback about strategies that can work to alter some of those challenging behaviors. And, and again, if you're, if you're not enjoying your relationships with your students, it's really hard for you to enjoy your job. Keith Herman, he is a professor at the University of Missouri in the College of Education and Human Development. We've been talking about a study today centered around coping with stress for teachers and how it needs to be more effective. And there's, there's a lot more that has to be done. Keith, thank you so much for joining us on Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. Show me today.